From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. And this week, we are joined by Larry Krasner, Philadelphia District Attorney, subject of a forthcoming PBS Independent Lens documentary called Philly DA, and the author of this forthcoming book, For the People, A Story of Justice and Power. Both the book and the documentary series will drop on April 20th. And this is actually not the first time Larry Krasner has come up on this show. Sarah Koenig put him on our radar or talked about him during the interview that you did with her, Michael, way back in 2019, almost two years ago, exactly. And if I recall from that conversation, she pointed to him as an example of a different paradigm for how DAs and how prosecutors are operating. Yeah, I I think the fact that I didn't know who Larry Krasner was when Sarah Koenig brought it up reminds me of how distant we really are from Philadelphia out here in the Happy Valley. But I I was not aware of the significance of his election at the time. I have a better sense of it now and really look forward to your interview. So, yes, Sarah was talking about a serial series that was new at the time anyway on a great podcast serial which was about the uh, Cleveland criminal justice system. And she had great access to the criminal justice system. And during the course of our interview, she held out Larry Krasner as a sort of counterexample to how criminal justice policy procedures tend to work in a large American city. Or maybe how they could work yeah. differently. Yeah, right? of course. She was saying right. that I mean, yeah, he offered a new model of how. Uh, right, right. And I don't remember hearing about Larry Krasner either. And we were able to see two of the episodes beforehand because we're media moguls and very important. And as a result, I mean, now I feel like I know not just about what he's doing, but how this is actually manifested in some big cities all over the country, right? Baltimore, Orlando, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, I'm probably missing a few, but that's an enormous percentage of the American population, let alone uh, just the people that live in these cities. And all of them share a similar motivation, right? It, it is that there's something fundamentally unfair, unjust about the way the DAs are working in these big cities, and they're out to change it. So, Michael, maybe we should just start by talking about what a DA does and how it normally works. I think it's reasonable to say that they sit at the top of the criminal justice system within a city. Mm -hmm. They are responsible for taking crimes that are reported by the police and making a decision about whether or not they're going to prosecute these crimes. And it's not unlike a district attorney to say, well, we're not going to prosecute maybe marijuana possession crimes or probably every day make the decision not to prosecute jaywalking and other sorts of crimes. And the decisions about what to prosecute or what not are among the most important that a district attorney does. And the other thing that a district attorney does is they're making rather profound recommendations to the court about what kind of bail a defendant should get. And this is, and I want to make sure we talk about that because it's a key part of Krasner's mm-hmm. agenda, along with mass incarceration, is the uh, the costs of cash bail, which I think might have been what Sarah Koenig was talking about 
if I remember back to that interview, because her up close storytelling about the implications of cash bail for people that are poor was quite striking. And so there's an incredible amount of power there. And it is also the case that whenever there's a court case, the DA represents the people. That's what they say when they go to court, right? They are a public official and their job is to represent the people against this person who has violated the public standards around what's legal and what isn't, right? And then on top of that, the DA works directly with the police because the police and the DA often coordinate in terms of what kind of evidence they have, what kind of case it is. Is this a real bad guy or should we let this one go to parole or probation? All those situations. And so all of that creates this culture that is exactly what well, I mean, it has to be that way, right? It has to work that way. But it also can and often does create a culture that Larry Krasner and other people around the country argue to be unjust, unfair, especially yeah. to poor people and people of color. And there's a larger shift in focus there to where Krasner's agenda really seems to be driven by a concern about mass incarceration and different than the kind of language you might usually hear from a district attorney where the focus might be on a city crime rate or on victims. But with Krasner, it seems to be more explicitly on the problems of mass incarceration, on the racial explanations and implications of mass incarceration, and on the role that he plays as a district attorney in contributing to mass incarceration. So, you know, we're not going to prosecute low-level drug crimes, not so that we can go out and prosecute other things, but because we don't want to put these people into jail and contribute to mass incarceration. But then also, I mean, I think it's also important to recognize that their argument about cash bail is a larger argument about the cycle of poverty and about how to break that. The thing about cash bail is that it falls disproportionately on the poor. Bail may be $1,500 or something or $2,000, but they can't do it. And so then they could be in jail, not convicted of any crime for up to years, I mean, you hear about that kind of thing, and and he talks about it quite explicitly. It's a matter of what's the best way to achieve the ends that the district attorney's office exists to serve, namely to keep this community safe. And if you are creating through bail and through this kind of revolving door of criminal justice, a cycle of poverty that becomes impossible for people to get out of. And if you are creating a system that is so burdensome that it just leads to crime as the only or the most obvious choice, then that doesn't make the community safe. And so he's taking on just a little part of this, and it's a fair question whether or not that's going to work. But it is, I think, important to point out that his objective is the same as every other DA that's been in that office. Mm -hmm. I think a lot will rest on whether Krasner and some of these others that are in this tradition, although maybe not as outspoken and out there as Krasner is, can win re-election. And and he does very much refer to it as an experiment. Mm -hmm. Let's put a pin in it there. We do talk in the interview about 
criminal justice as a piece of a larger system and, and how much control he does or doesn't have over that and some of the other issues we've touched on. So let's go now to the interview with Larry Krasner. Larry Krasner, thanks for joining us today. Delighted to be here. So I want to just dive right in with the big question before we get to some of your specific work as Philadelphia DA. Can you talk a little bit about what role you see the criminal justice system playing in our society, our democracy? I think the most important role that a prosecutor's office should play is to try to prevent the next victimization, the next harm to someone. The criminal justice system itself should play a role of making society better, not worse, and preventing crime, not encouraging it. And frankly, in many ways, it has failed. How have you put that philosophy into practice over the past several years during your your tenure? Let me see. We have been here since the beginning of 18, and we have cut the future years of incarceration being generated by the courts in half. We have cut the future years of parole and probation, something that was truly overdone in Philly by about two thirds. We have instituted units that do special work. One of them protects immigrants as victims, as witnesses, and makes sure they're treated equally as defendants. Another protects workers who often have crimes committed against them. Another one is our conviction integrity unit, which at this point has exonerated 18 people on 19 different cases, people who were either clearly, absolutely, without question, completely innocent, or people as to whom there's so much doubt at this point that their remaining in jail simply cannot be justified. Often this was due to hiding evidence, coercing confessions, mistaken identifications, but it's just unacceptable to have a system that is inaccurate like that. So those are some of the things that we have done. The first episode of the Philly DA series covers a lot about your campaign in 2017. And there was a lot of momentum around Democrats. Scholars can still argue about how big or how blue the wave was, but there certainly was some momentum there. What role do you think that momentum played in your election? And was it perhaps part of your decision to run? You know, it's a a very interesting question. The The only election that counts in Philly is the Democratic primary, because seven out of every eight voters are Democrats. So a blue wave, if it did anything, it simply drove out more Democratic votes. That doesn't really answer the question of why we ended up with basically more than the next two finishers combined. There were a lot of people in the race, almost seven people in the race at different times. I think it had probably some effect, but if you actually look at Pittsburgh, the other big city in Pennsylvania, there seems to have been a minimal bump in terms of an increase in voters. So something was happening in Philly that was definitely interesting. And I believe that when you look and you see that there were 50,000 unexpected, unlikely votes that turned out in the primary in 2017, the one that determined the outcome, when you see that and you put it in the context of the entire state of Pennsylvania was lost to Donald Trump by 40,000 votes, we're talking about turning out in a single city, the biggest city, but a single city, more than enough votes to reverse the outcome of the Trump election. So something did get people out. Perhaps some of it was Trump. Perhaps some of it was that there were some ideas about prosecution being put out there that were unlike any ideas that any of the traditional prosecutors have promoted in my entire career in Philadelphia. Yes, some of these ideas have been successful in, or similar ideas in other cities. Aramis Ayala, for example, in Orlando, Kim Fox in Chicago, Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore. These are some examples of people who won 
before our election with similarities in their platforms. But I can tell you this, there is no question that there were people who never voted before or had no interest in voting because they were so alienated from traditional prosecution and the mainstream machine Democratic Party. But they came out for this because it meant something to their lives and to their communities. Can you talk a little bit more about who made up the kind of coalition you put together and how you went about reaching those folks during the campaign? Well, ultimately, mass incarceration made up the coalition because its crushing weight affected so many people. And you didn't have to be directly affected to have a close friend in high school who ended up with a felony conviction sitting in jail for two years and had their future destroyed over a drug offense. You could have a nephew, a cousin, a friend from high school, an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. It became so heavy to be the most incarcerated country in the world that everybody knew somebody who had been adversely affected by it. That's what really made the coalition. Who were they? My biggest voter was a 60-year-old African-American woman. Black voters in general were big supporters. Millennials of all backgrounds, big supporters and working class white people, if somebody banged on the door and talked to them, were big, big supporters. And I say that because we looked at the areas where working class white voters did not have someone engage in a conversation with them we did more than twice as well, where there's a conversation. And what we found out in those conversations is, you know, maybe they didn't agree with me on the death penalty or something like that. But, oh, boy, did they agree that addiction should be dealt with by treatment? Oh, boy, did they agree there needed to be more money in public schools because it was affecting their lives uh, in such an important way? That really was the handholding going on here. Some very interesting different groups. And when that difference comes together, that is called power. The thing about democracy is we, the people, can sometimes be a little bit fickle. And, you know, I don't know if this is because we're not used to politicians actually doing what they say they're going to do. So when they actually do those things, maybe people kind of don't expect the results or they're like, oh, wait a second, this is what actually happens. I'm wondering if you have encountered that sentiment or how you think about that, about any kind of backlash to you actually putting into place the policies that you said you were going to when you were running. A lot of people don't like politicians for good reason. It's because they say two things at the same time. Typical politician BS is, yes, I'm with you, but I'm not a legislator. So I support what you want with gun control, but I can't make any of that happen, like that kind of nonsense. Or they flat out tell different things in different rooms. But of course, their favorite thing is what they call the pivot, meaning whatever you ask, I sure as hell I'm not going to answer I'll tell you about my pet chinchilla. I'll tell you about the stock market, but I ain't talking about the question you just asked. And I mean, it's so gross that a lot of political operatives are proud, proud of their candidates' capacity to, quote, pivot, unquote, to like a short list of talking points about how they grew up on a farm or they rescued a cat or whatever it may be. The typical tale of glory and struggle in some sort of fictionalized American world. Yeah, I mean, I don't like politicians very much. I might not even like myself in a while. We'll see. It's only been three years, so I'm not that bad yet. But I'm not real crazy about politicians either. There's something happening in this country. It's not just around criminal justice. There's something happening around democracy. I mean, look at the Bernie phenomenon. Can we all agree he doesn't wear a perfectly tailored suit? Can we agree on that? Can we agree? Not necessarily most likely person to basically be, at least in a prior election, the favorite of young Democrats in every single state, right? But there's a genuineness to people like him, like Elizabeth Warren. And of course, there are many, many others, including AOC and the squad and so on. But there's a genuineness there. There's something outside of politics. There's a kind of anti-politics 
there. That is very exciting to voters who are sick of the Richard Nixons and the Ronald Reagans and the old Bushes. They're sick of that. You also said, I believe in the first episode of the Philly DA series, that you were not good at retail politics, that going to have lunch with people to kind of explain your positions. It was too time consuming. You had a lot of stuff you wanted to do in in a short amount of time. I'm wondering if you have evolved in that thinking over the course of the past couple of years and how you think about that retail politics today. I am happy to admit it is indeed not one of my strengths. I came out of law school. I became a public defender. Then I ran my own law firm for many years. And every day started with a checklist of things to get done. High on that checklist was never call somebody and check in. Call somebody and ask how their duck hunting went or what's going on with their pet cat or had an operation that was never on my list. So I was a very task-oriented person. It's not a perfect way to be when you are an elected. It might be a perfect way to be a candidate, but it's not necessarily a perfect way to be once you are elected because there are some expectations from people who do embrace the political life, who do embrace a, a traditional kind of politics. My favorite course in college was animal behavior because you got to learn amazing things about what two different baboons did out on the Serengeti plane and the gestures and the nods and the facial expressions they would make to communicate with each other. Well, animal behavior applies in politics too. And there is something about calling to check in that I certainly didn't understand at the beginning. Just as Brian Stevenson says, you're not the worst thing you've ever done and we can all evolve. Hopefully I can evolve too. I checked in just the other day. It wasn't so painful. So like it or not, even though I'm a little bit of an anti-politician, I have to adapt and um, I have been adapting and we'll try to do better in the second term. Yeah. And I mean, there's also this sense of you're coming into this very large established institution and trying to make some pretty drastic change in, in a short amount of time. There was another conversation in the Billy DA series, I believe it was two women on your juvenile team where one was fairly new, had come in during the start of your tenure, one had been there for 10 years or so. And the kind of elder stateswoman of the two was saying, well, sometimes you need to have a little empathy for these folks. I know you think that they've been doing everything wrong for 25 years, but in their mind, they think they've been doing it right. So how have you been negotiating that with your staff as you've been trying to push for all these policy changes over the past three years? It's an important point because the very nature of change in an institutional environment is that the institutionalists, the old guard, take it as a reproach. I had this discussion with a pretty wonderful judge by the name of Ted McKee, who is an African-American man. He was a prosecutor, and then he became a state court judge, and then he became actually a very, very high-level judge. He became the chief judge of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, meaning he's one notch below the U.S. Supreme Court, but he's a very, very thoughtful guy, pretty liberal guy. He's sworn in now two classes of our young attorneys. And he said, there are things I believed all those years when I was sentencing people that were helpful for them, like long paroles and long probations. And it's hard to look back. He's now in his seventies. It's hard to look back and realize that I was doing things I believed were good all those years, but they turned out not to be so good. Well, he's a pretty amazing person. I mean, I think he can reflect on his life and admit that his version of public service through no ill intent kind of went awry. Not everybody can do that. There are just a lot of people who were trained a certain way. They were hired because of certain attitudes. That attitude was the only attitude that was allowed in an office. They were promoted. They were given raises on that basis. And you're what? Now somebody who wasn't even one of us is going to come into our place and tell us that there's a different way to do things. 
the simple change itself, never mind any sort of rhetoric around simple change itself can be taken as a reproach. So it plays out in different ways. Some people really can reflect on it, at least over a period of time with education. And we provide a lot of education and they can be willing to follow your plan, even if they don't agree with you. Other people are so dangerous to the institution because they have a lot of gravitas and they're never going to do what they're told that they have to go. And then there are people who can do it, but they're uncomfortable with it. So they kind of find their way out the door. It's as, as if they're classical music fans at Woodstock and Jimi Hendrix is kind of loud. So they just feel better somewhere else. We've seen some of that go on, but this is how culture change happens. And then of course, the real thing that's happened here is we made recruiting our top priority. We have now hired most of the 300 attorneys in the office. So you get to the point where the naysayers huddle in offices and close the door so they won't be heard in the hallways and the rest of us are in the hallways. That's the opposite of when we came in. When we first came in, we were all having to huddle in the offices while the naysayers populated the hallways. That change happens over time. It's constructive. It's what has to be. Criminal justice is not an island in that it's connected to many other parts of our social system and the institutions that support it. And you've certainly made changes as far as things like cash bail, for example, but you also have said that it's not enough just to get rid of cash bail. People have to have jobs and job training and all these sorts of things. And I wonder if some of the other parts of the system haven't held up their end of the bargain or maybe just haven't caught up yet again to that question of change and the rate of change. Well, no, they haven't. The fascinating thing to me about this movement, and again, I consider myself not a leader, just a technician for a movement. That's what lawyers do for movements. They're technicians. They don't lead it. Study any movement. That's really what they are. That's what they should be. They need to get in the back, not in the front, right? But I think that the most important thing to realize is that it's almost like looking through a piece of dirty glass. All the people out there are waving back. They're saying, come on now. This is why we elected you. Keep your promises. Do what we asked you to do. But the glass is kind of could use a cleaning because the institutions don't want that. Everybody knows this is happening except the institutions and the institutionalists. What they have not figured out yet is all of their power comes from the people. And in the same way, the people said, all right, we found a spot in criminal justice that has a bunch of power. So now we're going to take it back and make it work for us. Let's go hire or elect a bunch of progressive DAs. And by the way, right now in the U.S., 10 percent of all voters have elected a progressive prosecutor and reelected them in many instances. I mean, this thing is spreading like wildfire, right? What they haven't figured out is this is about to happen to them in the courts. Most judges are elected. And with data's new availability to look closely at a particular judge and that judge's practices, they will no longer be anonymous, nor should they be. They will be accountable. If judge so-and-so just can't help but give all black defendants twice as much time as white ones for the same offenses with the same prior records, then we have something to talk about, don't we? What's happened with progressive prosecutors is gonna to go to its 2.0. And the 2.0 is going to be mayors who pick police commissioners, and they're gonna want mayors who are gonna pick the right kind of police commissioners. It's going to be mayors who have to negotiate with police unions, and they're gonna want mayors who are gonna stand up to them because they believe in police accountability, they believe in equal justice. But it's also gonna be the judiciary, and the judiciary not only has power in a courtroom, they often have powers over things like the probation department, the parole department, which have such a profound impact on mass incarceration. It's just a feeder back to mass incarceration. 2.0 is coming, 3.0 is coming. The voters have been able to see how much progress they can make by electing traditional prosecutors, that will continue. But the next step is gonna be these voters who are so encouraged by the progress they've made in a short period of time 
by electing progressive prosecutors are gonna apply the same model to these institutions. And then you will see sweeping change in an even shorter period of time. It is time to take a break from the interview and tell you about another podcast in the Democracy Group Network that I think you'll enjoy. This week's feature is Let's Find Common Ground, which is a production of the Common Ground Committee. The show brings together well-known people who hold different points of view to discuss some of the biggest issues in American life today, including race, the environment, and the pandemic, just to name a few. Hosts Richard Davies and Ashley Millen-Tite talk with top leaders in public policy, finance, and education to offer a healing path to reaching agreement and moving forward. On a recent episode, Richard and Ashley sat down with two longtime Washington insiders to discuss how to find common ground in Congress. And yes, it is really possible. Listen to the episode. They'll tell you all about how to do it. So check out Let's Find Common Ground wherever you listen to podcasts. And now back to the interview. At the same time, I wonder if there's also the quicker some of these these changes happen, the more this momentum builds. Does it create even more of an expectation among the activist community and, and you more opportunities to say, oh, no, wait a second, you haven't done enough. And that comes back to bite you in the end. It's sort of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. There's some people that might say, well, you've done way too much. And some people that say, well, actually, no, you haven't done enough. And you have to try to find that balance between the two. Well, I say this with respect to both sides. I hear that all the time. We even hear it, for example, on an individual issue, an individual case. I actually think they should put some kind of calendar down in front of my office so that the protesters who think I'm incredibly unfair to them don't trip over the protesters who think I'm totally unfair the opposite way. Right. And I'm not kidding. Like This goes on all the time. Today, you're in the bag with. Tomorrow, you're utterly opposed with. It is in the nature of activists and activism that they speak with a, what a lot of clergy refer to as a prophetic voice, meaning they can speak with a clarity and absolutism that is different than what it means to be sitting in a, a seat and have to make decisions about all kinds of cases that don't fit some sort of easy stereotype or easy tale. One of the beauties of my 30 years in criminal law before I became chief prosecutor is you get the best stories and you get the best stories because people are so diverse. Every story has some kind of crazy twist and turn. And the reality is that the prophetic voice is not too good at that. The prophetic voice is good at saying, eliminate all jails and prisons, get rid of them all, bulldoze them, right? Okay, well, did the prophetic voice anticipate Charles Manson? Did it anticipate Ted Bundy? Let out everyone before trial, they're innocent until proven guilty. The law does say they are to be presumed innocent, but the law also says if you're really dangerous, you might have to sit in jail because if we let Ted Bundy out and we let him go home, he's going to kill a bunch more blonde women who look similar, right? That's a bad thing. We don't want them to die because Ted went home. So this to me is the fundamental difference. And I say this with great respect for activists. I represented activists for free, almost always for free for 25 years. It was my professional hobby. But they get to speak with a prophetic voice. They get to speak with an aspirational voice. Sometimes on their list of demands, a progressive prosecutor is going to do seven of those things but can't do the other three or doesn't even agree on the other three. Sometimes that's how it is. And the reaction just because of what they're used to, which is not even being in a room to talk to that prosecutor, being outside of the building, banging their head against the building, the reaction is going to be, what? Only seven on my list of 10 demands. Well, it used to be zero on your list of 10 demands, right? 
And so we have to, as people who are in elected office, even if we are no fans of politicians, no fans of ourselves becoming politicians, we have to respond to everyone who put us there and everyone who did not put us there. We have to think not just about the people who are in the courtroom. We have to also think about the people who are out of the courtroom, have no involvement in the courts and how they are affected by what we are doing. And that means we don't just answer to a single group or a single constituency. We answer to a lot of different ones. Hopefully we do so without compromising our principles, but hopefully we also do so without compromising justice in any individual case. The prophetic voice is not about an individual case in the same way a mandatory minimum, and I hate mandatory minimums, is not about an individual case. The job of being a prosecutor means you have to pursue individual justice in each case with all of its messiness, all of its delving into things we might want to talk about, mental illness, background, specifics of the facts, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's a different place to be. Yeah. And that's also hard to put on a poster or put on a campaign slogan when you're trying to get ready to run for real. Here's my slogan. It's complicated. I mean, people ain't voting for it's complicated. They want to hear it simple. You mentioned Chicago earlier, and I know that the state of Illinois passed what seems to be a fairly comprehensive police reform bill at the beginning of this year. As we think about the other elections that are going to be happening in Pennsylvania next fall, potentially new governor, new senator, a bigger changeover as far as the state's politics go. Do you see any opportunities for larger scale reforms like that at the state level, similar to what has happened in Illinois? There is great potential, but it requires people to do a thing which is vote in more massive numbers than they ever have in the past. The Republican Party in the United States is hellbent on taking away Democratic votes, especially black and brown Democratic votes, because that's where they see the increases trending across the nation. They are intent on taking away marginalized votes. And they could win this. This could really be a country where we have minority rule, meaning Republican rule, over a country that is democratic. They're doing a good job so far and they've done a hell of a good job in Pennsylvania. We need to have massive, massive turnouts of voters. We need every 18 year old to be tugged by the elbow to go register and then vote. And we need everybody helping everybody else vote. There have been times in the history of this country when the turnout was so much higher than it is these days. And if we have that, it means everything you want. It means another Republican United States Senator in Pennsylvania. It means a governor who is a Democrat, hopefully a progressive Democrat who cares about the big cities, including Philadelphia. It means a legislature where the Democrats are dominant and we can have some real regulation of guns that can take a bite out of gun violence. It means reversing all kinds of crazy gerrymandering. It just means almost everything you can imagine in terms of criminal justice reform and in terms of routing resources to where they should have gone in the first place for things that prevent crime. And the Trump era is not over. It needs to be stomped out, frankly. What that means in May in Philly, I hope, is we'll see a ton of voters. We'll see a ton of volunteers. We will not just see a victory. We'll see a mandate because with a mandate, we can say a lot. But it is also important, even if I'm not the issue, if our candidacy is not the issue, it's important to have this kind of huge turnout in the primaries across the state because that is how Stacey Abrams built Georgia's victory. If you turn out big with people, voting is habitual. They'll turn out big again, and they'll turn out bigger again, and they will teach their friends and their younger people who are not ready to vote yet, they'll teach them to do it. 
So it is incredibly important that we do that. And I think if we do that, we can have pretty much everything we want politically in terms of change. We will leave it there. Larry Krasner, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Jenna, that was a really interesting interview and I'm appreciative that you were able to get it and that we're able to have him on the show. Listening to him, thinking about the documentary, what's going on in some other cities, it really strikes me that district attorneys like Krasner are a sort of a new step in the civil rights movement or in the fight for civil rights anyway, right? So we're at this point where clearly how African-Americans are treated by the criminal justice system has become a real focal point in the civil rights conflict in this country and has attracted quite an interesting multiracial sort of coalition that's come out in these protests and across small towns and large cities in the United States. And I think where previously black voters in urban areas in America kind of focused their political power on electing black mayors. Now it's shifting to electing district attorneys who are willing to confront the challenges that the criminal justice system presents that have become so crystal clear now for the African-American community. Right. The issue in civil rights right now is the criminal justice system and the perception of just these systematic, longstanding abuses and injustices. And so that's where they're focused. And so that's what you're seeing politically, right? I think that's absolutely right. The other thing that I think is really interesting about this is that this change is reflective of changes in American politics broadly. And this is going to sound really strange, but Krasner really reminds me of Donald Trump. And obviously not in any kind of policy way, But in terms of him becoming this outsider who ran in the first time against seven, I think, other candidates, maybe six, and he was obviously the outlier. So he emerged just because there was so much competition who all looked similar to each other. And then he creates this coalition of people who have felt like outsiders and felt disrespected and unfairly treated by the status quo brings them out in numbers that they had not come heretofore, and then runs his office just like he campaigned as an outsider. I mean, obviously, there's an enormous amount of difference, but there's something very interesting between the fact that you have Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and people like Larry Krasner all emerging and all successful in this kind of Politics as it is right now is not working. We need to do something else. Taking a step back from it, what really strikes me about both of them is I'm thinking of E. Schottschneider, a political scientist from the early 1960s, who very famously directed our attention towards the outsiders in politics. It's like the interesting game is not the people that are in the game and that are voting and that are participating, but the ones on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. And whether or not there are candidates and movements that can bring those people in somehow, find the issue, find the argument that brings them in. And that changes politics pretty dramatically when they're able to do that. Krasner points with pride to the fact that he increased turnout in that Democratic primary quite significantly. 
But also in Philadelphia and many other big cities in the United States, crime has increased. I think there are probably a lot of pandemic-related explanations for what's gone on, and there are explanations that are well beyond me. But when you're sitting in the DA's office, it's very possible that that all is going to come down on you because their primary responsibility to many people in the city is going to be to just keep crime down. And whether or not his policies contribute to a higher crime rate or not, and I'm not asserting that they are, the connection can clearly be made there. And so what will be interesting to see here is whether or not he can turn this into a second term and really institutionalize many of the changes that he made. Keep in mind, it was quite dramatic in the first episode, the way, and he talked about it a bit, Jenna pressed him on it a little bit. He came in, he had to get rid of everybody. He just cleaned out the district attorney's Mm -hmm. office in Philadelphia because he recognized how deeply entrenched the culture of an institution can be in its people, by the people that are there and by their standard operating procedures, by their way of doing things. Now, the next DA could come in and do exactly the same thing. So my inclination, you gave a positive spin of this, a Schatzschneider spin. And my inclination is to give a kind of a more negative one about democracy, because When you're talking about campaigns that people normally run for the DA, their objective is to say crime is a problem and the solution is to put more people in prison for longer. And I'm going to do that. That's my job as a DA. And when I get elected, I will run on the fact that I have done it. And that operates whether or not... That is the smartest way, the most scientific way to organize your prosecutional strategy. It's because it works as a campaign issue. And so what Krasner has done is to turn that around and say the system that you have to live under is not just. It's not fair. And so I need you, people who are experiencing this unfairness, to come out and vote and create a new coalition. But that is usually the way a DA runs, and it's usually successful. And the culture you're talking about is, he actually says it, I think, in the interview or in the program, that the way you got promoted, the way you got hired, the way you got bumped up in the system was to achieve that fundamental goal, put more people in prison for longer. And that's because that's what a DA needs to do to get elected. Right. So it makes me wonder whether or not there's an argument for taking the DA out of politics. But there's also the argument that if it were not for politics, Larry Krasner would never have gotten elected. Yeah. Although, you know, I was really struck watching his first campaign by how much it was based on a pretty sound, not that complicated yet authentic argument about why we have mass incarceration Mm -hmm. and why we have problems and pointing to the prosecution of victimless crimes and pointing to the use of cash bail Mm -hmm. and pointing to a few other things. I mean, I thought the reason he probably did so well is that resonated as pretty darn true. Especially the, with people who have experienced. Yeah. Who, that, or, you who know, have family or friends who have yeah, experienced. Yeah, that's who their life is. And right. who have seen the damage that that can do. So there's one other point that you just raised with me that I think is an interesting contrast between Krasner and your typical DA. And that is that for many 
many people, including Ed Rendell, the DA's office is seen as a very viable political stepping stone because it is high profile crime, especially very serious, horrible events. The DA is front and center in terms of saying we're going to bring this person to justice. And that leads them to have a viable campaign for higher office. And Krasner has said, I'm 60 years old. I'm not running for anything else. This is it. So that objective is gone. Yeah, well, our president is 78. So I wasn't all that compelled by the I'm 60 (laughs) years old and too old for higher office. So I've seen more convincing denials in my time. But All right, well, maybe so. We'll see. But but in any case, your larger point is an important one. This is an important stepping stone. I mean, just look at Amy Klobuchar, uh, Lindsey Graham. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. I mean, you just, there are so many former prosecutors, not necessarily district attorneys, but former Mm -hmm. prosecutors, state attorney generals, U.S. attorneys that do work their way into higher elected office. It is absolutely a way to establish your credentials? I think we would say when this show comes out, really, it's worth your time. It is so interesting. And the kind of access that they give. Oh, it's remarkable. What were they It's thinking? amazing. What were Just they amazing. Thinking? And whatever happens, it is worth as a kind of window into American politics and especially American city politics, American race relations. It's all right there. And it's, it's really worth your time. Thank you to Jenna for a great interview. Thanks to Larry Krasner for giving up some of his time. And thank you all for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. And this has been Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.